Let's pray and ask God to bless our study. Father, we uh, come to you once again in prayer just to acknowledge to you that we're approaching your word and we want our hearts to be ready to hear it. Take away the distractions and other things and help us to focus. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, This morning we're going to return to a, a narrow part of the passage we looked at last week. We covered quite a bit of ground here in Matthew 15 and we're going back to verses 18 through 20 this morning. It's so important that um, those texts, and we just barely touched on it really last week. So um, I want to go there again. Jesus, uh, as always, packs a lot of truth in just a few sentences. It doesn't take him a lot of time to say really important things. And he does that here. He tells us where sin comes from. He tells you what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me and why there's so much evil in the world. And it's a really important piece of uh, biblical anthropology. Anybody take anthropology in school, in college, or anything like that? Anybody have one of those courses? A couple people. What is anthropology? Well, anthropos is is the Greek word. You know, the Bible's written in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. And um, anthropos is the Greek word for man. And the ology thing, as you all know, is like the study of. So anthropology is the study of man. And it's interesting um, in itself because if you think about it, man is the only creature of the earth who studies himself, actually is interested. Animals don't study themselves. But if you look in a dictionary, there's two kinds of anthropology. And the first definition um, is in the field of the sciences, and that definition is the scientific study of the origin, the behavior, the physical, social, and cultural development of humans. That's the first definition you'll see in the dictionary. Most dictionaries have a second definition. You'll have one, two, and then they give you another definition. And that is, here's the second definition. The part of Christian theology concerning the origin, nature, and destiny of human beings. So in systematic theology, when you study theology, it's kind of broken up. It doesn't have to be, but it generally is broken up into seven areas like theology proper is the study of God, Christology is the study of Christ, pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit, things like that. But there's an anthropology as one of the seven areas of systematic theology, studying um, man as the Bible presents him. So scientific anthropology is based on observation and the discovery of artifacts. That's pretty much what it is. Biblical anthropology, the study of man, is based on what God has revealed. So those are two very different approaches to the same thing, humans, right? So one of the reasons I became a Christian is because the word of God explained very important things to me that scientific anthropology totally fails to address. It doesn't explain at all. God's revelation tells me why I'm evil. And it tells me why I care that I'm evil. Those are two really important things. Really important things. It doesn't have to persuade me that I'm evil. Some people say, well, you just believe you're evil because the Bible said, no, no, I believed that long before I ran into the Bible and started looking into that. I figured it out all by myself. (laughs) But the Bible does explain it. When it comes to explaining why Wayne Wilson has evil resident in his being, 
Science is just a dud on that subject. It really is. I mean, it, it, it tries to find causes for bad behavior like, oh, you know, competition for females or fight or flight, all these kind of psychological principles, the, the stuff that animals do. But human evil is so different than what animals do. It's like way beyond, off the, off the scale, what human beings do to each other. Humans are evil in completely different ways than animals. One is because um, we think, for one thing, so we are creatively evil. We invent new evils. In fact, humans can talk about good and evil because human beings were created to be moral creatures. So we, we, we are moral. When I say humans are moral, I don't mean we're perfectly good. I mean we think in moral terms. Why do we do that? Where does that come from? And why can we perceive evil in ourselves? So we actually cannot help thinking in moral terms. Every human being does that. Animals are not moral creatures at all. They are what they are. They don't discuss morals. You know, you don't see a couple of wolves saying, you know, Tim, I sort of feel bad about grabbing that buck the other day. It looks so innocent and sweet. They don't have those kind of conversations. <laughs> they don't question the rightness or wrongness of their own actions. They live by instinct. Humans think about good and evil all the time and can't help but express themselves in terms of good and evil. Why are humans moral beings? Why can't we help ourselves from thinking that way? Science is really bad at explaining that. And nothing there in scientific anthropology really explains me to myself in the areas I most want to know about, which are the things that really matter. There was an article offering to explain human evil in this September 2017 edition of Psychology Today, which is sort of the premier psychology magazine. And the author, you know, I kind of worked my way all the way down through it. At the very end, I was thinking, how, am I, how can I share this whole article with you guys? And the, but the very end, the last paragraph summed it all up, so it's really short and sweet. So this is it. Here's the, the scientific anthropological explanation for human evil. Evil behaviors can result from, and he mentions four things, breakdowns in molecular me mechanisms, and then it says alcohol. <laughs> Neural mechanisms, frontotemporal dementia. Psychological mechanisms, poor impulse control. <laughs> and social mechanisms, peer influence. That's where evil comes from. It's one of those four things, or all of them. That's lame. I mean, I don't want to be mean, but that's pretty lame as an explanation. It's almost funny. None of that explains the real evils we find in ourselves, like pride, selfishness, covetousness, greed, envy, malice, slander, and so many other things. It doesn't even begin to explain all of those things. Even if we have great impulse control, the corrupt desires that, are, that we have to control, where do those come from? What, what is that? Science can't tell you because the root issue is the soul, and science doesn't do souls. I mean, that's why. Science cannot measure anything spiritual, so they don't include it. They can't measure it, so it's not measurable. It's not included in the thinking. 
That's where it stops. So when it actually is dealing with the condition of souls, it has to kind of fill in the gaps and make stuff up and assign behavior to biological impulses and sociological factors. That's really all they have. What does your biology say and what is the thing around you pushing you to do? That's why psychology, though it can be very helpful at times in explaining, um, by observation, explaining behaviors, it's really limited in solving human problems. And that's why even though we live in the psychological world for the last hundred years or so, evil hasn't gone away at all. We're not healthier, happier, more holy, godly, nice even. And I should say that biblical counseling has limits too because it can offer limits to everyone but if you're not born of the Spirit of God, if, you're not, if you haven't been born again, you're not going to respond to the truth of God. So that has its own limitations. It's the Bible that has the very solid explanation for why we are moral and what is that explanation? It's right at the beginning of the Bible. We're made in God's image. We're made in His image the image of a moral creator. He's moral, so we're moral. He reasons, so we reason. He is a spirit, so we're spiritual beings. There's a spiritual component of us. And we think about morality because we are made in the image of a reasoning creator. So biblical anthropology explains why I'm evil and explains with great accuracy the human condition as we see it every day. And I've heard no explanation from any other source, any other source, and I look, that even comes close to really explaining what, well, Pascal, the French philosopher, said was the greatness and wretchedness of man. I am an amazing thing. I'm not more amazing than you. Just by being human, I am an amazing creature, and I'm wicked. The greatness and the wretchedness of man. What is the best explanation for that? Only the Bible offers it. We're amazing because we're made in the image of God. We're corrupt because we fell away. That's it. I don't know anybody else that has a better explanation. If you got one, come up afterwards and tell me because I'd like to hear it. Where does evil come from? It comes from the fact that I am fallen. I am born to a fallen race, a race of beings that are estranged from God, corrupted at the very core of what and who we are. That's the plain teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why he brought a flood onto the world. And then after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, it says, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intent of his heart is evil from his youth. That's just a summary statement about human beings from God's point of view. So he's saying there in Genesis 8.21 that the flood isn't going to end this thing. Eight people survived who are born of the same corrupt blood of Adam and their descendants are going to continue on with the intent of man's heart being evil from his youth. That's just the way it's going to be. So that's twice in Genesis that God identifies the human heart as the problem. David Psalm 51.5, after reflecting on his own profound sins, realized, he said, Behold, I come forth, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He doesn't mean she sinned in conceiving him. She means, he means he received his sin nature from his parents. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. 
There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Jeremiah 17, 9, this is very important. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Talking about the heart of man, the human heart. Deceitful, more deceitful than all else. So the heart of man is the problem. That is clearly established in scripture and that's why Jesus confronts the Pharisees over their ridiculous obsession with minutia in rituals and all of that kind of stuff. They should have known from the Old Testament that the heart is the fountain of all real defilement. Sin is just a a bubbling cauldron of evil that spills out of us. It's not just what we do, it's what we say and it's what we desire. The Puritans used to say sin can be found in human works and human words and human wishes. Our works, our words, and our wishes. You can find evil in all those things. And the wishes point to the fact that a lot of times we keep it in here. But that's where the corruption begins. So it starts from within. So here's our text, uh, Matthew 15, 18. Jesus explaining the root of sin to Peter, actually. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And he's not just throwing that in, that's what the whole discussion was. If you weren't here last week, that's what started the whole thing. The Pharisees were saying, your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. And they're like, that's defiling. And he said, and he, this is what's defiling, not that. That's what he's saying. So he mentioned seven sins or areas of sin here, but they're just representative of all sins. A, a full list would take like a lot of pages. And actually there is a fuller list because Matthew's giving us a, a slightly edited version of what Jesus actually said in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter seven, verse 20 through 23. There's a fuller account of Jesus' words. Mark quotes the same seven, and then he includes seven more. He adds that Jesus said, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, and foolishness. So actually Jesus said at least 14 things. Mark might have been keeping the list short too. So all sins, all kinds of sins, where do they come from? The defiled heart, the human heart. The really important words in this text are the in and out words. Matthew 15, 21, Jesus says, from within. That's where it starts. That's where sin starts. And then he says, out of the heart of man proceed all of these sins. So from within, proceeding out of the heart. John Newton, the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, most of you know that he was a slave ship captain with all the evil and cruelty that went with the Atlantic slave trade. And after he came to Christ, he wrote a letter. There's a famous collection of John Newton's letters that are well worth reading because he was a great man of God. But um, he wrote a letter about God's gracious patience with him. And you know, the, the hymn says, a wretch like be." I mean, he meant that <laughs> when he was writing God's grace saved a wretch like him. In his letter, he wants to talk about God's patience with him 
But he can't use examples. He can't, it's hard for him to struggle with examples because he doesn't want to share what God's patience means to him because he doesn't want to tell you how patient God is with the evils that are in him. He actually writes this. He says, alas, the most marvelous proofs of the Lord's patience and goodness to me are utterly unfit for publication. <laughs> Nay, I could not whisper some things into the ear of a friend. It has been since my conversion, not what happened before it, that I have known the most striking instances of the vileness and depravity of my nature. My heart has been continually producing new monsters. I have good reason to believe that it is still comparatively an unknown territory to me and that it contains bottomless minds, depths, and sources of iniquity in it, which he says then, he, he says he can't even begin to imagine what's coming. It's because when you become a Christian and the Lord awakens your mind to your sin, you start to see much more of it because you start reading the word of God and you say, oh my gosh, I'm guilty of that, I'm guilty of that. And that's why. And, and, and then the corruptions of your own heart are clearer to you because you care about it now. It's like, I, I want to be a holy person and, and that makes you see your unholiness all the more. My heart has been continually producing new monsters, he says. That's a man who brutalized slaves. But looking at his own heart, he sees even worse stuff going on in there. But he's being honest. He's willing to face the truth about the human heart. Even a heart touched by incredible saving grace. So let's talk a little bit about the heart, the way it's used in the Bible just for a bit here. The, the heart as Jesus uses it obviously is not talking about that pumping organ in your body. Even when I'm talking about it, I'm pointing here. But, but that's just because the heart's the center of our body in, in really important biological ways and it's kind of the center of our bodies anyway. But um, it's, we're talking about soul, the soul, your spirit. It's, it's the center of who you really are. That's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about your heart. So if it's not exactly the same thing as your individual consciousness, it's really close to that. Maybe it is that. Your personhood, it's, it's, I call it the you that makes you you. What, who are you, right? You're somebody special. There's only one of you, and it's in here somewhere, and it perceives the world, and it interacts with the world, and it thinks and all of that. That you, that's like your heart. The human heart is amazing and unique, um, it plans, it feels, it ponders, it thinks, it's aware. That's the heart in scripture. And the heart is, your heart, your spiritual heart is the very evidence that you're made in the image of God because that's what distinguishes you from all other creatures in the world. And that's the thing that's broken, that image, it's corrupted. So if you follow your heart, it's not always a good idea, right? Because you're following something that's really broken. Let's look at the heart in the book of Proverbs. I'm just gonna list off some Proverbs. You can turn if you want to or just listen as I kind of rattle off some of these. But you really get a sense of how central it is. It's where we process things, ponder things. It's from the heart that we make choices. So we do have the power to sort of direct our hearts, to point it in a certain direction, to guide it where it needs to go. That's why I say it might not be exactly the same thing as me because if I'm directing my heart, then my, uh, there's something else there that's pushing my heart in a direction. It's hard to figure all that out. Who can know the ways of the Spirit, right? But um, Proverbs 2.2, 2, 
Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. What's that mean? Well, I think in modern words, we'd say lean in, right? Incline, lean in to understanding. Lean in what? Lean in your heart. In other words, take God's wisdom that he's gonna give in the book of Proverbs seriously. Lean in on that. Take it in. You, You can ignore understanding or you can incline your heart to it. A lot of people ignore it. You know, the Bible says that uh, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Many children, it takes them a while to start leaning into wisdom because they don't want to do that. They've got other things in mind. Other things are distracting. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything about you that comes out, it comes from your own heart, so you have to watch over your heart because it can deceive you and it can sink you, can ruin you. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. We mentioned that. Who can understand it? More deceitful than all else. It's even more deceitful than Nigerian emails telling you that $20 million are waiting to be put in your account if you would just respond. Um, It's more deceitful than scam callers from the IRS. It's more more deceitful than politicians. (laughs) Your heart is, you know, you grumble about all those things? You grumble about those guys? Your heart is more deceitful than them. Remember that. So you got to watch over it. You want to watch over those guys? That's fine. You watch over your own heart even more. It's more deceitful and it relates to your life a lot more. Your heart is a greater power to deceive than anything you can think of. Here's some other descriptions of the heart from Proverbs. Uh, 16.14 says, The man with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. And it's that man who spreads strife. Some people love to cause trouble. The bad heart, Proverbs 5.12, spurns reproof. You correct that man and he says, ha, don't talk to me about it. You're judging me. Don't do that. Um, The perverse heart is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 11.20. An abomination. It's the most detestable thing God has to look upon is a perverse heart. It's from the heart that a foolish man rages against the Lord, Proverbs 19.3. It's the heart that envies sinners, Proverbs 23, 17. But by God's grace, a heart can become wise. Proverbs 23, 15 says, if you're wise, apply your heart to discipline. Be disciplined in spiritual matters. Solomon tells his son in Proverbs 23, 19, Proverbs 23 uh, is a great chapter. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. So there's a way, there's a right way, the narrow way, and you can direct your heart in that direction. You've got the strength to do that. He wisely tells us in Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So being wise is not trusting your own heart. That's almost the definition of foolishness. but he who walks wisely. So, well, if I can't trust my own heart, well, what can I trust? I mean, who can I trust? Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? That's, that's it. And lean not on your own understanding. There it is. Well, that's really hard. Uh-huh. That's why it takes discipline. 
So you got a decision to make there. You can trust in your heart or you can trust in the Lord. Every human being has to make that decision. Perhaps the proverb that comes in, a, in an interesting way, sort of closest to what Jesus is saying is Proverbs 27, 19, where he says, as in water, face reflects face. If you want to see what you look like, you look in the still water, right? In those days, they didn't have very good mirrors. So the heart of man reflects man. You want to see what you look like? You look in the mirror. You want to know what, know what you're like? You look in here, in your heart. What, what's in there? What's bubbling in there? And that can be hidden from other people since it's in here. You can hide it from other people at least for a while, but none of it's hidden from God. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you look really close like John Newton did, you might see monsters there. The kind of things Jesus talks about here in Matthew 15. They all have their root in the heart. So let's look at the list he gave back in Matthew uh, 15, 18 here. The evil thoughts... Or is the first thing, the first word there? The Greek word for thoughts is, see if you can pick this up. Dialogismos. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's related, it's related to the Greek word from which we get our word dialogue from. So what's, it, what's that mean? Well, it means like pondering, mulling over, sort of having internal dialogue with yourself. You know, you're thinking about something like that. That's, that's the word there. So, so Jesus mentions evil mulling over, evil thinking through things. It means something you're considering, that internal discussion that's going on. But these are evil thoughts, so we're, we're mulling over hatreds, bitterness. Hey, don't distract from me, kid. <laughs> My grandbaby, she's drawing your attention away, I can see. Um, who was in the hearts of those rich people who, um, paid, you've been reading the news, I, I assume, lately. Why do we lie and cheat? And think about those people that were planning, pondering to bribe coaches at university, to pay off counselors, to fake applications, to take phony pictures of their children pole vaulting when sticking their face on another person's body and um, going through all of that and spending a fortune. Uh, The heart had to ponder all of that wickedness and choose to do that. I can break the rules, I will break the rules, I will cheat, I will defraud other people so my child can say they went to a prestigious university. That is, that is an incredible depth of corruption. Say, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody. Well, think about it though, the, what that reveals about the heart. What is in the heart to deceive a customer, for example, to pilfer from the till at work to steal from the store you work at or somebody else's store? What's in the heart to seduce somebody or to use them for your own gratification? Evil thoughts. Evil thoughts are at work plotting and planning. Of course, the ultimate evil thoughts are against God, refusing to obey Him and figuring out how you can get away from Him. The step down from there is is the the next most horrible thing is, is to have evil thoughts regarding God's truth, regarding His Word and rejecting that. Romans 1.5 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator and st- the creation instead of the Creator. And that's what people do today. They worship the creation like crazy. Most people do that in their hearts. And, and below that is a level of, of evil thoughts towards God's people, which now you see in our culture in a very vibrant and intense sort of way. It's kind of, a, kind of alarming. It's fascinating. This, uh, this 
becoming normative in our culture to hate God's people and um, uh, it, this dying culture we live in. But evil thoughts come in all kinds of forms. It's part of our fallen condition to mull over wickedness and to um, justify wrongs that we've done, even love what is wrong, even just have a passion for it. So uh, we shape our morality to fit whatever we want. That's evil. Those are evil thoughts. We're not, we're not the determiners of right and wrong, you know? How can we be? I mean, right or wrong are obviously defined by the creator. And for us to say, well, I'll make my own rules, that, you can't do that. Very often, though, uh, a pagan's, I mean, a true pagan, somebody that worships idols or their ancestors, their conscience will more or less accept the basic moral principles that all cultures kind of embrace together. But tragically, human beings being what they are, evil thoughts work in their mind to break their own morals. So you don't even have to have God's morals. Before I was a Christian, I had my own moral standards and I broke them. I couldn't live them. So I'm gonna be this kind of a man. Well, I wasn't very often. Maybe I, I strive for that, but I blew it bad all the time. There's other things in the list get more specific than evil thoughts. Adulteries, fornication. Fornication's that word pornea from which we get our word pornography. All kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage are included in fornication. Adulteries obviously are sexual sins in marriage. And Mark adds, and I told you in the seven things he adds, he adds sensuality. Those are all related to each other about the misuse of our bodies. And of course our culture is obsessed with those sins. We live in a our culture is very much like the culture of the New Testament in the Roman Empire and the Greek culture where fornication and adultery was just, that's your favorite sport, right? I mean, we live in a world like that now. People don't even feel the slightest bit guilty about those kind of things. They're not regarded as sins, certainly not by our cultural elites. They are, um, but they are sins. I mean, human sexuality was designed by God, purposeful. It's got all kinds of wonderful, glorious things about it in marriage, which he invented as well. And all other, all other expressions of it are sinful. Whatever, whatever men crave is what they really worship. And you can tell when people don't want to worship God, they worship the creation instead of God. And wherever faith and love and honor are, are weak and God is not the satisfaction of our hearts, then bodily stimulation is really all people have left to really enjoy, and so they seek that out. So sex and drugs kind of all rise in popularity. And there's a physical component to these temptations, obviously, a craving of the flesh, if you will, but when the heart gives way to the lust of the flesh, the heart makes a choice about what to do with those feelings. That's when sin comes into play there. You were actually designed by God for your mind to rule over your body, to actually have total control over your body. If you were not a fallen creature, it would be really easy to rule your body, but since you are a fallen creature, it can be a challenge to rule your body. That's the broken mess we're in. It's hard, but still, we make the choice of what we're gonna do, and it's a moral choice. That's why Solomon tells his son about the seductress in um, Proverbs chapter six. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her her capture you with her eyes. So yeah, there's an external thing going on there. She's trying to lock eyes with you and do that coy, uh, seductive thing. But um, 
But the well-informed, wise heart just sees that and goes, no, that's, a, that's low. That's a temptation. So, man, you can direct your heart. You can incline your heart. You can direct your heart to honor women and the Lord and be so committed to brotherly affections towards women that you won't fall for the very temporary pleasures that sexual sins offer. And ladies, you can incline your heart to not needing that kind of approval, but taking approval from God on being a, a godly woman and a woman of self-control. The next in Matthew, uh, we have uh, verse 19, Matthew 15, 19. Jesus mentions murders. The human heart is full of murder. There are fewer murders in countries with a stable government and a reasonably uncorrupt police force, but when that's gone, uh, murders just go crazy because uh, people don't murder mainly out of restraint, you know, for fear of punishment, but murders are actually pretty common, and people will kill for all kinds of reasons. I, a few months ago, my home state of Indiana, which is the most pure state on earth, but... Um, <laughs> A 16-year-old football player, just a couple months ago, he stabbed his girlfriend to death because she was too late to abort the baby that they had, and he threw her in a dumpster. So they sinned sexually, and he, um, they, they, uh, he wanted to sin by murdering the, the baby through abortion, and since she didn't go along with that yet, or past the time when it was legal in that state, he murdered her, so sin produces sin, produces sin, produces... It's kind of like David after he sinned with Bathsheba, right? And so he had, to, he had to work it out to kill one of the most noble men in his kingdom who was the woman's wife, uh, husband, you know. It was that guy's wife that David slept with and uh, to cover up that sin. And it's like, that's how sin works. It's never, never good. It always leads to more horrible things. So David became a murderer and in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, in case we think we're morally superior, because this is what modern people do, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> Matthew 5, 21, you've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's pretty clear. You deserve hell for expressing disdain for another human being, for putting them down, like you're better. If you've got monsters in your heart, how much better are you than that person you're calling these names to? Well, it's my pride that makes me call them those names. Jesus says that's murder. That's the heart of murder right there that looking down, that devaluing of other people. So murder is anger expressed, it's the heart. The heart is where it takes place. Whether or not you plunge in a knife or a dagger or say those words, your heart is where that murder is already happening, when you feel that way towards other people. Jesus mentions thefts next and the thing. People love to steal. Think of how many resources, resources are used to prevent, counter, and apprehend thieves. You know? There's a whole economy out there built around stopping thieves. And there's so many ways to steal and many ways for the heart to justify it. He mentions two forms of lying here, bearing false witness and slander. False witness is a really interesting Greek word, pseudo-marturia. Now, we know the word pseudo, right? That means fake or false. And marturia is where we get our word martyr. And it means witness. 
So a false witness. And the reason that word got stuck to martyrs, people who died for the faith, is because they bore a testimony of Christ unto death. So that word martyr, which just means witness, eventually got attached to people that gave their lives for Christ. But here Jesus is using it in the common way, just bearing witness. I saw this, I heard this, or somebody told me about this. You know, that, th- this is saying something you know to be untrue or you're more than willing not to find out if it is true because it's such a juicy one. You know, it's, putting, it's slandering people, it's telling stories, innuendo, rumor, half-truth, character assassination. That's really evil, really evil. And it used to be devastating to people because communications went so slow, the truth never caught up to the lies, right? Now it's the other way. It's so fast and spread so quickly over the internet, all these stuff, that you can never get it out there enough to catch everybody that heard about it because it's so fast. So it's like crazy. Where does it all come from? Where does false witness and slanders come from? The human heart. It comes from the heart, out of the heart. These sins come and proceed out. All sin flows from our deepest self. And like I mentioned, Mark also mentions deeds of coveting, deceit, envy, pride, and foolishness. They all come from the heart of man. J.C. Ryle, that great uh, Anglican bishop from the 19th century, he, he commented on these words in Mark's gospel. And he, he always, uh, I always appreciate him because of his clarity. And he writes of Jesus' teaching here, and I had to boil this down, but he says, there is a deep truth in these words which is frequently overlooked. Our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run to sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. We see from this passage what a black catalog of evils, he says, the human heart contains. Let us distinctly understand that when we read these words that the Lord is speaking of the human heart generally, he's not only speaking of the notorious profligate or the prisoner in the jail, he is speaking of all mankind, all of us, whether high or low, rich or poor, masters or servants, old or young, learned or unlearned, all of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus describes. The seeds of all evil here mentioned lie hid within us all. They may lie dormant all our lives. They may be kept down by the fear of consequences or the restraint of public opinion or the dread of discovery or the desire to be thought respectable and above all by the almighty grace of God. But every man has within him the root of every sin. And he's right. He's right. So behold humanity, right? What a, what a wondrous creature, and we are. And what depraved creatures we are, corrupt from within. So we do find new monsters in our heart, or stubborn old monsters sometimes as well, right? And we should realize that that's the human, human condition. So don't be surprised by it. Don't pretend that's not you, you know? That, um, it's not there in me. I don't know what he's talking about. Don't, you don't have to say that. It's something, it is something to be ashamed of, certainly before God, but it's the common lot of all of us. So you're not more monstrous than anybody else around you. It just feels like it because theirs is relatively concealed and yours is with you all the time. We all share in this corruption. 
And that's, that's why heaven is barred to sinners. How can God possibly let human beings just come into heaven as they are? What would heaven become if we were all allowed in there like we are? It would be hell. <laughs> We'd make heaven a place plundered by corruption, our own internal corruptions and sins. So we don't deserve to be there at all, at all. God would be a monster to let us in there. He would be, a, you know how people say God's a monster for sending people to hell? God would be a monster for letting sinners wreck heaven. That would be monstrous. Keep that in mind when people say that. There is good news in all of this. He will let us in there if we come by the way of the Savior, which not only pays for our sins, but transforms our hearts. And you've already, if you're a Christian, you've already sensed that transformation beginning. And it's, with all the monsters that are still in there, they will be taken away before you walk in that gate. You're going to be made holy. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then it says, a little bit down from there, in verse 19, Romans 5, 19, for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. That's what we're heading for. Righteous, righteousness and eternal life. So we're saved by the grace of God based on the righteousness of Jesus, the Savior, and we will be made righteous when he grants us eternal life forever in heaven with him. It's a, it's a gift of God to sinners, to be saved from ourselves. So our hearts will be purified, our bodies remade and fit for heaven, that those nagging sins won't be there anymore, and there'll be no more sin. One of heaven's joys is to know a sin-free life. Wouldn't that be great? Going there is our only opportunity to experience that. I'm ready, I am ready. But being a wretched sinner myself, that, that's, a, that's a gift I can't refuse. It's offered to all of us if we want it. Let's pray. Oh God, our great Father, heaven's great glory is seeing you and being able to worship you freely forever without the taint of evil. What a complete Savior you've given us in our Lord Jesus. You purchased our wretched souls by your blood. And you promised to make us righteous. So we long for that day. So let us today put off sin where we find it so we might shine more brightly in this world for you. We pray in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>